special tribute to a fallen aviator, when to take full flap on approach for stabilised approaches, and what to do when you're not getting good flight training. I answer these questions and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 51 of Flight Training Australia podcast. The podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. Another big week up here in Darwin, the wet season has presented itself and is definitely uh, bringing with it some challenges already. With several storms coming through the area, including one Saturday night, uh, approaching like most of them do just from the southeast, only to strengthen as it approached the airport, intensified with uh, winds gusting over 137 kilometres an hour, or around 76 knots. Uh, apparently, wind's not seen in Darwin since tropical cyclone Tracy, even Marcus in uh, 2019. It was stronger than that. There was some damage around, fallen trees and the like, and uh, sadly some aircraft uh, damage, including the beautiful DC-3 here belonging to the Hardy family. It uh, must have jumped the chops, blowing back some 50 metres or so to a few of the other aircraft which are no longer in service, uh, causing some damage, which hopefully can be repaired and we'll see it again up in the air sometime soon. Some amazing lightning, uh, I witnessed some incredible lightning, the sky went green. I originally thought it was maybe some power transformers that had been hit, but after some googling it looks like it was due to massive moisture content and ice, and uh, the sky just glowed green um, for about a second or so and then faded out again. Uh, nothing I've seen before. It was incredible stuff, but really highlighted that you just don't know when a storm's going to come through and if it's going to be a strong one or not. So always tie down those aircraft, keep them secure, chocked, locked uh, with the control locks to just minimise the chance of damage to aeroplanes because um, you just never know when it's going to happen. Talking about weather, I'll be uh, having a chat with um, Harrison at the Bureau of Met. I talked to him a little while ago about uh, dry season weather and promised you a follow-up interview regarding the wet season and uh, flying in the tropics. So that'll be uh, Thursday. I'm having a chat with him and all going to plan. That'll be out next episode on Monday. So keep tuned for that one. But today, uh, just before I get started, looks some really sad news um, for my wife and I and pretty much anyone who has had some link to the Royal Air Club of WA down in Janicott. We all lost a very good friend and a club member, Adrian Thomas. My wife, Amanda, and I, we've known Adrian for uh, some 27 years, her even longer. And look, amazing guy, so gentle and friendly, just happy to talk to anyone about flying and a real advocate, especially for aerobatics and formation flying. Uh, if you've lived in Perth and have ever seen Australia Day air display or some of the other displays that happen, uh, you probably would have seen Adrian flying his, his white Harvard um, with Sue Clark and her Victor uh, flying around him in the David Goliath display. He was just the kind of guy who, if you're at the Aero Club on a Friday afternoon in the right spot at the right time, he'd uh, offer you this, a ride in either the Eagle or the Harvard and go for a ride. 
And many people have their very first introduction to aviation through Agent's Generosity. I did several flights with him in the Harvard and uh, in the Christian Eagle. He, uh, I did my first lumpshire back with him. And um, sadly, Adrian lost his life the other week with uh, his Robinson R22 failed to return to Jandicott after a club fly into quarter. Um, having a club flying for the weekend and everyone got back to Janicott, realised that uh, Adrian hadn't returned to Janicott and uh, after a search, uh, his helicopter was found um, and he and his passenger was sadly deceased, which was just absolutely terrible. Uh, I mean, any crash is terrible, but when it's someone you know, it obviously it always hits home uh, even more so. Incredibly competent pilot, no idea what happened, why or how, and now's not the time to really think about all that, but just uh, just a real tragedy, and I wanted to just send my condolences to uh, my former Aero Club family and just everyone down in Perth listening that knew Adrian, his daughter, and family. Um, my sincere condolences from Amanda and myself, and uh, Adrian, rest in peace, and uh, you'll be missed, mate. So now onto something I've touched on before, but it just seems to keep coming up. And that is when to put flaps down whilst conducting instrument approaches. So operating an airplane normally, usually downwind, you might take a stage of flap. Otherwise on base, depending on what the aircraft is, you might elect to take that full flap on base, um, otherwise on final. And this is going to vary depending on whether we're flying a, a light aircraft like a 152, 172 and Warriors and, you know, all, all the like, um, through to something bigger like a, a Baron 310, through to King Air, uh, PC-12 jets and airliners and the like. The general rule of thumb is stabilised approach. This is what we're considering. And again, I've raised this before. Stabilised approach for a smaller aircraft will typically be somewhere around 300 feet, meaning we want to have all the flap out, power set, everything trimmed, and within some tolerance of our final approach speed. It could be 5 knots or 10 knots or 15, whatever it is. Okay, um, and that, that's our final approach speed over the fence, which is our VREF speed. Now, when we're coming in, if we're not set and stabilised by 300 feet, there's a likelihood we'd be too fast. We might balloon a bit if we add flap after that point, which can just interrupt the profile and possibly cause us to overshoot our aiming point and therefore our touchdown point and use more runway than expected. If it's a long runway, it's not really going to impact anything. You're just going to end up further down than you normally do. If it's a shorter runway, it could mean you actually overrun a runway that you normally don't have any problems with. So stabilised approach criteria will be set by the company or if you're a, a sole operator yourself, um, it's something you should think about setting yourself a target as to when you're going to hit these gates and the configuration you're going to have by that point. And if you haven't, you're going to do a missed approach or a go around. Now, I have been listening to some other podcasts and uh, opinions from overseas and talking about when to take flap on an instrument approach. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is we're in cloud. 
we can't see. And so any attitude or performance configuration upset needs to be picked up by the instruments. And for some, depending on experience, it might not be quite so instant. It might take a little bit of time to notice that the rate of descent has suddenly sort of plateaued and you're flying level for a bit um, when the height loss isn't continuing and we've actually got higher than we should be. So normally we will have a situation where by 500 feet we want to have full flap out if we're in a visual condition. Otherwise, instrument flying 1,000 feet in IMC. So that means you might actually put it all out at 1,200 feet. So you've got 200 feet of a little bit of upset, and by 1,000 feet you're all stable, sweet, hands are off the controls, everything's trimmed and going great. That's what I like to do. A lot of people, though, have been saying we don't take full flap until we're visual. And it's a bit of an over-mitigating strategy just in case we have to do a go-around. Now, my response to them is, okay, we don't want to be taking full flap low, i.e. on an ILS around a 300-foot sort of minima, because that's just too low. And so what they do is they'll let you use approach flap be it your 15 or 20 degrees, depending on the aircraft you're flying. So I don't disagree with taking flat that late. I think that's correct. You shouldn't be doing that. And um, you mitigate that by taking flap earlier, but not by not taking full flap. Remember, when we read the POH and how the aircraft's been designed, it's set and the landing configurations and everything else, all the performance data is based on a full flap landing with the one exception of being asymmetric, but I'm not talking about that. All right, so you never see Qantas, Virgin, Jetstar coming in with half their flaps out. And I can assure you that they're doing instrument approaches as well. They're taking flaps much further up the line and they're all set up ready for a normal approach and landing within the distance that they would have pre-calculated had they done a landing chart. Now, one of the arguments I've heard on another podcast is that, hey, what's the problem? You've got plenty of runway in front of you. The problem is I don't see this as a good mindset to have. We should be aiming to land and pull up in the minimum distance reasonable under the correct configuration. If we take the flap approach scenario and use more runway, okay, you might be used to doing that. And if you're up here in Darwin, well, yeah, we've got a three and a half kilometer runway, no problem. All right, Perth, not so much. Sydney, Brisbane, all that sort of stuff, no dramas. But what about if we go somewhere else and it's only 1,000 meters or 1,100 meters, right? You're going to end up in a pretty serious uh, scenario where you could actually have the end of the runway racing up at you and uh, giving you a bit of a scare. So thinking about visual approach criteria, in IMC conditions, you should be taking full flap and stabilized by a thousand feet. In VMC conditions, 500 foot's okay because you've got your eyes, you can see the ground and everything else, and you're going to pick up any upset. You should be always anticipating flap and gear. So flap is typically going to uh, typically going to pitch the nose up to start with. Gear nose down typically. So anticipate that and be ready with a little bit of opposite. Um, pressure on the elevators to counteract it and you shouldn't have any major dramas 
adopt the new attitude if your aircraft has one with gear and flap out and everything's good. And as far as if you do need to do a go around goes, well, the airplane will fly with full flap and gear out. Okay. So even if you're heavy, just remember we don't have to be nose up flying out like a rocket and um, gaining altitude immediately. It is perfectly acceptable to fly level and just stabilize the aircraft so you're not losing any height, clean up the aircraft, gear up, flap up, and then we adopt our nose up climbing out attitude and start climbing away. We don't have to be going up immediately. That's just going to result in a massively high drag profile and um, decay in performance and speed, potentially even below a blue line in a twin. And I think that's where this idea of over-mitigating a poorly handled and flown go-around a missed approach to just not using all the flap so we have better performance. What do you do? I'd love to hear your comments. Um, flick me a message and um, add it to the post um, description uh, on Facebook or even Instagram when I uh, post the episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts and what you think about it. All right, I've been contacted by a few students recently uh, at all different levels of training, right in the beginning to um, the, towards the end of their training and even for later on advanced training. And in essence, the question has been, what do I do when I'm getting bad training? And look... It's a really tough situation to be in and a really tricky uh, question to answer. First of all, if you are having a bad time, there's two general reasons why. Either you're just struggling, and that could be because you're not applying yourself properly or you're just generally finding it difficult, or you have a mismatch with your instructor or the school itself is just not that great. And look, this is uh, hard for me to answer because I'm not there and I'm obviously going to be very careful not to just go and backstab another flying school and, and blame them, um, which flying schools are very good at doing, and try and just say, yeah, well, they're crap and you should come to me or anything else. I'm not going to buy into that. Um, schools have their reputations. There's enough opinions and um reviews and the like online that you can go and find your own way there. And if you're already there, you'll have your own experiences and witness experiences of others to know whether the school you're at is doing the right thing by you and looking after you, or maybe you need to look at doing something else. And ultimately that's the power that you do have. If it's not going well and you're honest with yourself and you really feel that you are putting in your best effort and you're just not getting anywhere, you can't get a new instructor and it just doesn't seem like anything's changing, then the option is to move to another flying school. And that's completely within your rights to do and not that difficult a process uh, to do the to get it done. Right? You can simply go to the new school, let your old one know that you're moving. The uh, head of flying operations will send a email or a letter to your old school requesting your student records and have them transferred. 
And then you can go through with them and let them know what's going on and pick up basically where you left off and hopefully you have a far better experience. The other thing is, as always, knowledge is power. And what I mean by that is understanding the training syllabus, where you are in the syllabus and what's involved and what is actually required versus what you might get told. Okay, I'm getting um, some feedback late that people have been told they need to do five hours for a proficiency check. Now, proficiency check is 61385 check, and there is nowhere in there that tells you that you must do five hours. There's nothing that tells you what you must do to achieve that general proficiency or competency. So anyone telling you that is lying and trying to get money out of you. Now, some companies like you to have five hours on type. And when I say on type, we use the term loosely, but we're talking about the kind of aeroplane that you're going to be go flying. So it could be a 210, 206, a, a twin, a, a tailwheel aeroplane, could be whatever it is. All right. But to achieve general competency, that could be done in two hours, I think is reasonable. One or two flights usually, because again, if I just teach you something and you just spit it back to me via rote, uh, learning, just repeating what we just did. It's a bit hard for me to really say that you're competent in that task until we come back and see it again. All right. And again, even then, doesn't mean that in seven weeks' time you're going to be just as good, but you know, we can only go so far with this. So you just need to be mindful of what is actually required and know your rights and just question the situation. And if you're getting messed around, someone's just really there for your money rather than what's at your best interest, then find somewhere else to go. For instructors listening, whenever I do training, I'm always going into it as if I'm paying for it myself. If I'm not giving good quality training with, and that can include ground theory, um, I spend a lot of time on the ground because I think quality in flight training is desperately needed. And students will have far more knowledge and understanding and retention of information with good quality ground school theory. If you just jump into the aeroplane because your instructor's not being paid for the ground school component, the, the theory briefings, and they're just going flying, again, this is not going to work in your favor. Go to a school that pays the instructors properly or that spend the time briefing you properly, and you'll find it will make a world of difference in your flying as well. Quicker is not better. And again, I'm not going to point fingers and I'm not going to recommend anybody or anything, but understand that certain levels of training need to be done slowly, efficiently, but with good information, briefing, supported by good quality, practical flight training. All right. I often hear the word, I'm just going to go smash out my instrument rating. I can pretty much guarantee that this is the worst possible decision you could make. The instrument rating is not something you go and smash out. Now, some people use it loosely, but others are literally doing it. You go, you drink from a fire hose, three, four weeks later, you come out with an instrument rating. Those people generally, a couple of weeks, even months down the track, have got no idea what they're doing. And in speaking to airlines and even mid-level recruiters like uh, RFDS, CareFlight, um, that sort of thing, they are finding a massive downtrend in the quality of IFR pilots and their knowledge and their understanding, um, even at higher uh, mid-level charter organisations. 
the standard is falling, and this is not good. So as instructors in flying schools, we need to do better. We need to sometimes slow down, think about what we're doing. If you're a student and you're getting training, make sure that you're spending the quality time with the instructor. You're getting the knowledge, the experience, the translation of uh, rules and regulations into the practical sense of what's going on out in the cockpit and while you're flying. If you're not, it's it's not going to work for you in the long run. I can guarantee you that. All right, I've been talking to people that they are just really struggling. And these companies are not flight schools. They're charter operators. All right, They're there to provide a service. They do the line training, teach you the job. You should be coming with a good, solid uh, IFR background already. Uh, night experience is really, really low, and people are struggling especially up here in the top end, you go flying in night, it is blacker than black and can be quite unnerving at times. So you've got to know what you're doing. There's no cheating this. So make sure you're getting good training. If you're not sure, talk to your instructor, talk to the head of operations. And if you're not getting anywhere with that, then the only other real option, again, if you're being honest with yourself and you're putting in the yards, is to look at changing schools. All right, so good luck with that. Hopefully it all goes well. And I can't give everybody um, guidance and feedback and stuff, but if you're having troubles and you want to reach out, feel free to flick me an email and I'll try and give you a bit of guidance as to what I think you should do depending on what's going on. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remember, as I just said, love your feedback. Um, If you disagree or agree or want to expand on anything I've talked about, feel free to comment online. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, Trent Robinson Aviation. You can look that up there. I'm on LinkedIn. And you can also send me an email at info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. And I'd love to read your feedback. Also love all your reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Hit the five-star button. Leave me a written review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on that platform, it really means a lot to me. I love reading them and it helps others find the podcast as well. Make sure you share it with all your friends. Uh, Serpentine Airfield uh, guys down there, thank you, Phil, for the uh, recommendation in the weekly newsletter. Really appreciate that. And g'day to everyone down in Serpentine in Perth there. All right. Until next week, blue skies. Not so much up here at the moment, but be safe and remember that golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone.